Welcome to Used to Be, a podcast about who we were, who we are, or what it all might mean. Today, we have stories from people who, in some way or another, experienced a change in their lives, and we'll consider those stories through the lens of Asian philosophy. Part 1, Rising to the Occasion When he was in middle school, our first storyteller was faced with a challenge that would help determine who he would become. Can you state your name for me? Alan Moore. Thanks. Alright, can you tell me just a little bit about yourself? You know, mainly, I guess, I'm a recent college grad, you know, just kind of started out working in my career, uh, you know, graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering and kind of took a slightly different path. I'm in actually, you know, management. I manage about 25 people at a uh, manufacturing facility. You know, for a life event that I'd have to, or, you know, events around me that changed me, I'd have to probably say one of the biggest things was uh, back when I was in eighth grade, um... I guess it would have been right at the beginning of eighth grade, but my father went, ended up, you know, going to Iraq. Uh, he'd re-enlisted probably, you know, whenever I started middle school, and um, so he ended up, you know, doing all the training and shooting off to Iraq. You know, eighth grade. You know, middle school's a already a pretty troublesome time for just yeah, about yeah. everybody anyway. Um, so you know, it, uh, you know, through that year, you know, you you don't have your dad. Your father figure's not really there. You know, it's just me, my mom, and then my sister, who's eight years younger than me so she was probably what I guess two three years old at the time mm-hmm. uh, you know so it, it definitely put me in a different place you know I'd, I'd had my dad around all the time you know one of the biggest things I was doing back then was playing football and you know he coached me for all those years and then um, I aged out of the you know league uh, Parks and Rec League that is in Lexington and I had to play in my middle school, which was, uh, you know, different. So, you know, I'm losing my dad as a coach. I'm losing him around the house. And, um, you know, I'm playing for a team. And so a different team, you know, at my middle school. Um, and and so there's a lot of different life events there where it was kind of like, you know, a lot of the other middle schools were just kind of doing whatever, you know, normal middle schoolers do. But I had to kind of grow up a lot faster. And uh, <clears throat> You know, a lot of things were hitting me at once, you know. On the football side of things, um, you know, I came from a team that in all four years of me playing, we won 62 games and we lost two games. And my middle school team lost half the games that season. So, you know, I wasn't one of the things, you know, I wasn't even used to losing at that point. So that, you know, kind of messed me up. But then, you know, I don't have somebody who's going to help me with through that. So, um, you know, I had to rely on different people to kind of help me figure things out and, uh, in that year, I, I really grew up a lot more than a lot of my peers did. Like I said, you know, you don't really have, you're missing that part of your family, but at the same time, you still have to do all the same stuff. You still have to, you know, push on through everything, and, you know, you don't know what's going on over there, you don't know what's going on over here. Uh, so it's kind of a tumultuous time, but, uh, you know, definitely grew up a lot in that year, and <clears throat> it kind of changed my views on you know, my responsibilities as, you know, part of the family or just as a person in general and, uh, you know, my outlook on life and things like that. So that was a pretty big year. And then even going into my freshman year of high school, um, he got back, you know, probably the summer between eighth grade and freshman, my freshman year. But uh, he'd also got his promotion when he came back uh, to become an officer. And so, and he was in Georgia for six months. So it was kind of this, you know, yeah, you were in Iraq for a year, but you were also, you had your training for six months before that. You know, then you were at officer basic training, 
OSC and all that stuff for another six months after the full year. So there was kind of a nice two, two and a half year period where my dad was very much in and out and in and out and in and out. And, you know, communication, depending on where he was, wasn't always there. And so it was a very interesting time. Very interesting time. Would you consider yourself those two Alan Morris to be the same in the same person? No, you know, I I'd say not really. You know, I seventh grade, you know, I guess I was a little more that, you know, happy go lucky kid, you know, doing all the kids stuff, you know, whatever is all that and then, you know, you gotta grow up a lot because, you know, at the end of the day and, and I was always very, you know, realistic, you know, there's that distinct possibility that, you know, he never comes back or, you know, he does, but something's different. You know, even when he did come back, you know, PTSD was uh a big factor. Him and my uncle both. Uh, my uncle also went a little bit after he did to Afghanistan, but um, you know, so going through those processes where there's kind of that unknown factor and everything's very real. You know, every, you look at the news, you see all this stuff, and you don't know necessarily what's going on over there. And you know, so that really changed me a lot, um, and you know, really made things a lot more serious in my life, just in general. And you know, I definitely say I was a different person after that year, year and a half. And even, you know, even further, you know, kind of dealing with the effects of once you get them back, uh, you know, you kind of have to readjust and, you know, figure that out. Obviously, you know, you know, funny stories from that, you know, where we're driving along, some old lady runs a stop sign in front of him and he gets out and just yells at her because he was a lead convoy driver over there. And so that's kind of a shaky thing. So, you know, even that, you know, changed me a little bit because it's a different side of a person that you, you're not used to seeing and. You know, a lot of people don't don't see, and so it, it does kind of change a little bit. So I'd, I'd definitely say that I changed a lot in that year and a half. I think that even though Alan himself said that he was a different person after that period, what he experienced doesn't seem to be some sort of shift in identity, but rather the acquisition of one. Whatever growth he accomplished during that time seems to me to be a matter of circumstances demanding a kind of personal responsibility. Before his father had gone to Iraq, Alan, being a middle schooler, probably didn't have much of an identity to speak of. That's a time for all of us when we are searching for something to recognize and relate to, to say, this is who I actually am. For the longest time, our parents are this source, because any recognizable pattern in our lives is directly attributable to them. It's only when we begin to loosen our dependence upon them that we begin to see ourselves emerge. For Alan, this realization had to happen more explicitly because of his father's absence and because of the loss of his familiar football team, something he clung to for a sort of validation. I won't try and argue that Alan's situation is one shared by all. I never had to worry about a parent off in an uncertain war, but his struggle to establish himself is so essentially human. Alan's story reminds me of Confucianism and the weight that is placed upon duty and filial piety. The Confucian self is wrapped up entirely in virtuous action and social relationships, so to change it would mean to radically change your behavior, and in Alan's case, to assert himself as an autonomous individual in his father's stead. There's an interesting nuance in this change, in that Alan's autonomy is still a sort of deference to his parents. To become a fully realized person, he didn't exactly step out of his father's shadow, he instead adopted some of his responsibilities. He was no longer a powerless child. He had to become capable of being to himself what his father had always been. Alan realized a very Confucian notion of taking charge of yourself while not pushing back against the people and the forces that facilitated your growth, and in fact striving to return the favor. The way in which he was able to become so much more serious and to accept his new responsibilities for his father's sake would certainly be becoming of the Confucian gentleman. 
I also think there's another quite compelling story of change here, that being his father's change having come back from the war. Alan mentioned his struggle with PTSD, and the particularly illustrative example of his traffic encounter with the old woman. It seems to be a strong case for the self being an aggregate of experiences. His father, having experienced the war, became the perennial warrior, its burden lingering on his shoulders. This conception of self contradicts strongly with the self, or Atman, envisioned by Hinduism. In fact, throughout the Bhagavad Gita, the central push is for Arjuna to give up his narrow conception of himself and his place in the war to be fought, to fight by adopting discipline and renouncing action. For the essential truth of Hinduism is that the true self, Atman, and the eternal transcendent source of everything, Brahman, are essentially the same thing. The Buddhist conception of self, on the other hand, dovetails rather nicely with the experience of Alan's father. For the Buddhist, an individual really is an aggregate of their experiences, and the self, the unchanging self about which we pivot, is an unfathomable mess. This self is not identifiably experience, nor can it be distinct from experience, so we must see the emptiness of the very concept. And because the self is unreliable, Alan's father can go to war, and come back, and be markedly different from before, without the need for an account which says that he is still the same and will return imminently. These things happen, people suffer, so we can't waste time trying to recapture a memory of a way of being. To see beyond this illusion of self, and to keep aware of your mind and body in whatever state you find them, that might lead to cessation. However, neither Hinduism nor Buddhism can really account for the sort of trauma that is exemplified by Alan's father's PTSD. There's a way in which what happened to him is quite unlike any other change that occurs in a person's life. This isn't just a place on a timeline that signals a transition from one way of living to another. It's an experience that eroded his sense of self. It's an experience that will not remain past, instead insisting itself on him at every turn. I think it would be insulting to claim that his connection to this past experience is some fault of his own, an error of attachment. Some events are beyond our control and make us irrevocably different. In this way, we must see how our interpretive lens may fall short of capturing his experience. Part 2. Divorced, Detached During his high school years, Walker was thrust into the middle of a conflict, but in the process learned a positive way of life. So when I was in junior year of high school, uh, my parents got divorced, and that was, um, it was really rough for me and for my brothers. You know, we had to do the whole uh, splitting up houses thing, and um, it really, during that time anyway, um, it really just brought me down, like, super low, and, you know, se senior year, I was uh, doing a lot of whenever we had those um, senior, uh, the, the videos that we had to bring in and talk about stuff, uh, I, a lot of them were on like depression and things like that um, because I just, I was really in a slump and I was just trying to, really trying to get out of it. Um, and I didn't really know how things were gonna turn out. I was glad to be leaving all of this and going to college and everything. Um, but for the most part, it just, at first, it really, it really hurt me. But then I got to the point where I was kind of like over it. And, you know, I say over it, but um, I just really wanted to not be sad anymore. Um, and I didn't, you know, I knew that there was nothing that I could do. You know, I tried to, being the eldest, kid I tried to mediate between the two of them and um, 
and it, it just wouldn't, wasn't working out. And, you know, they would fight all the time and, you know, try not to fight in front of us, but still, you know, they would sometimes. And they would both use me as a sounding board for, you know, hey, you know, why don't you tell your father this? Or, you know, why don't you ask your mother that? Or, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that it was fair to be pulled into the middle of that. But, you know, after after a while I just really got to the point where I was like you know what I don't I don't need this and I um I don't I don't need to be sad I don't need to deal with you know what they've got going on I've got my own thing and you know my grades in junior year were really bad and you know senior year they got better but there was all that senioritis going on and everything so um it really did help me to get motivated and, and become, I was already independent. Um, I've been mostly independent for a long time, but um, it really pushed me to just realize that I, anything that I have to do, I just have to take it in my own hands and, and be done with it. Um, I guess, you know, maybe there's like a lack of, of trust in people because, you know, the some other stuff that was going on back then, but um, I just, I kind of decided that I can, I can do whatever I need to do for myself. And um, that was, that was hard for me, I think, because I didn't want to have to, you know, be that, be that person that was just you know, no, I don't need anybody's help. No, I don't need anybody else because I really thrive on other people. And, you know, during, <laughs> during this Thanksgiving break, uh, before my brothers got here, I was just so bored and I was just, I was dying of loneliness. But, you know, also I just don't want to ever be in that spot again, you know? And so I just, I've got this really upbeat personality and you know I like to laugh and have other people have fun and I don't I don't know I don't see the point in getting hung up on on things you know a lot of the times something bad will happen like I'll get a bad grade on a test or I'll get you know something else will go on and and I'm like you know what it's over it's done I just uh, I don't I don't need to worry about it anymore what's what's past is past and I'll do better next time. And uh, that's, I think it's been a good attitude for me to have, especially um, that I'm switching majors and everything from chemical to biosystems um, because, you know, I wasn't doing super great in process principles and, you know, material science was really hard. And I was like, you know what? I don't, I don't need this kind of negativity. I'll just, I'll just move on with it, you know, and uh, now I'm biosystems and I'm not upset about it. I still like am able to get to my end goal. It might take a little bit longer because I'm a little behind, but yeah, I, I mean, I feel good about it. So bringing it full circle, I just, I feel that, you know, a lot of the things that happened in, in high school that kind of got me to where I'm at in UK, you know, the bad grades in junior year and compounded with some other things that just made me not able to go to like you know Cornell or Johns Hopkins or you know somewhere that I was really looking forward to but 
I, I mean, UK was the place that I needed to be, and um, I think that with the whole parents splitting up and, you know, really having to just take stuff into my own hands, it just, I realized, you know, I don't, I don't need to go to Cornell or Johns Hopkins. I can just go to UK and, you know, do what I'm doing here and do really well and just kind of take it in stride. And I feel, I feel like it made me more resilient to just a lot of the the stresses of every of everyday life. Um, you know, I'm not so brought down by things all the time, and um, a lot of people will, you know, use me as kind of like a a shoulder for when you know they're got rough stuff going on, and and I'm okay with that. And you know, I like to, I just I like to see everyone being you know happy and everything going well, and you know I. I've had my troubles and fi figured them out and fixed them, and uh, now I can help other people too. And it's it's nice. It's nice being able to say, "Hey, I've been through that," or like, "Hey, I know what you're feeling right now, and let me help you." Walker expressed his own inner struggles about the divorce of his parents and the subsequent depression that he wrestled with in the Bhagavad Gita. Lord Krishna tells Arjuna that he must tolerate distress because it's a part of life, but he also tells him that a true understanding of the self and its situation in this world will give him the strength to carry on, even when things go against him. Lord Krishna teaches Arjuna that he is not the body, but rather the soul within. He says to him, Never have I not existed, nor you, nor these kings, and never in the future so we cease to exist. Just as the embodied self enters childhood, youth, and old age, so does it enter another body. This does not confound a steadfast man. And I believe that this is saying that the soul itself is eternal and has no lasting connection with either the body or anything related to it. And being aware of just that can inspire detachment. It's through this knowledge that we can understand that the real self, the real person, is different from the perishable body. But beyond that, Lord Krishna teaches Arjuna the art of transferring attachment from the temporary to the eternal, specifically to Lord Krishna himself. All the attachments we develop in this world are just seen as misplaced attachment for Krishna. Lord Krishna says, I am the source of all the universe, just as I am its dissolution. Nothing is higher than I am, Arjuna. All that exists is woven on me, like a web of pearls on thread. I am the taste in water, the light and the moon and the sun, Om resonant in all sacred lore, the sound in space, valor in men. I am in the pure fragrance in earth, the brilliance in fire, the life in all living creatures, the penance in aesthetics. All this universe, diluted by the qualities inherent in nature, fail to know that I am beyond them and unchanging. This can be taken to mean that everything we're attached to is, in a sense, Krishna. Because he creates and pervades everything, all our attachments are to some aspect of his energy. Yet, while Krishna and his energy are one and the same, they're different too. So although attachment to Krishna leads to liberation from all suffering, attachment to his material energy binds us to the material world where we must suffer repeated birth and death. For Walker, I think he grew by realizing this to some extent, by learning from past suffering while not living in it hopelessly attached. 
Because he experienced such hardships, he was able to realize the ways in which he had a hand in his own suffering, and that he could be released from it simply by relinquishing his attachment. He mentioned that he got to a point in his life where he was feeling so drained, and I think that this was where he started to put into practice non-attachment, which is ultimately what led him on the path to being happy again. Now, the Buddha differed radically with this most fundamental concept of Hinduism, and in line with his preaching, the early Buddhists did not believe in the existence of a permanent and fixed reality which could be referred to as either God or soul. To them, what was apparent and verifiable about our existence was the continuous change it undergoes. Because of this, early Buddhism declares that in this world, there is nothing that is fixed and permanent, and that everything is subject to change and alteration. And I think that according to Buddhist teachings, life is comparable to a river. It is a progressive moment, a successive series of different moments, joining together to give the impression of one continuous flow. It moves from cause to cause, effect to effect, one state of existence to another, giving an outward impression that it is one continuous and unified movement, where in reality, it isn't. The river of yesterday is not the same as the river of today. The river of this moment is not going to be the same as the river of the next moment. So does life. It changes continuously, becoming something or the other from moment to moment. And if you apply this same thought process to the life of an individual, I think it would be a fallacy to believe that a person would remain the same person during his entire lifetime. He changes every moment. A person is what he is in the context of the time in which he exists. The various stages in the life of a man, the childhood, the adulthood, the old age, are not the same at any given time. The child is not the same when he grows up and becomes a young man, nor when the young man then turns into an old man. Due to this, I think impermanence and change are the undeniable truths of our existence. What is real is the existing moment, the present that is a product of the past or a result of the previous causes and actions. Part 3, Again at Last when she was a child, growing up in Colombia, Susanna always had Camillo by her side, and even as they grew up and fell out of touch, their story was not over. Whenever I think about my childhood, it just brings such ha happy memories to me. Um, it was just a, a wonderful time in my life, and a great part of it was having my best friend with me all the time. My best friend, his name is Camilo, and we would spend every spare time that we could together. We, we did all these great things. In those days, uh, children didn't have all the technology and all the things that children have now. But it was, um, it was uh, a lot of fun growing up. I grew up in South America. And uh, we had all these different games where um, we would go out and play and run. And, and my best friend and I would have always something interesting going on. We'd have uh, science projects and we'd work on them and um, experiments. And we had dogs and we loved to walk the dogs every day. Uh, it was just really, really fun sharing time with him. 
everything was easy and um, and sweet, and <laughs> and and we just enjoyed the company of each other very much, to the point that we were always together, even when I'd get sick. Uh, he, I could be upstairs in my room and I could hear him knocking on the door saying, hey, can Kirky play? And he'd just go upstairs to my room. I could just hear him running up the stairs with his uh, either parches or Monopoly game or something. And we'd spend time after time playing until I got well. And that happened all the time. Each time I was sick, he was there. He was sitting at the at the side of my bed and... Uh, uh, the the only uh, really bad thing is that a few weeks later he'd get sick as well. That happened when I had the uh, chicken pox. And then he got the worst case ever, which left scars in his face. And it was because he was just sitting there next to me all the time. So um, we did all these different things and walked the whole city that was Bogota. That was a big city. We'd go with the dogs, and it was just this carefree uh, relationship, if you could say it. So basically, we grew up together, and it was great. We spent our childhood together, playing all sorts of games. We spent our teenage mm, days together, talking about friends and whatnot parties and other things. We spent our early 20s together and then uh, we went into the university. He went to the Universidad Nacional, the National University, and studied veterinarian. He always knew he wanted to do that. I went into um, fine arts to uh, the Universidad de La Sabana and that's where we kind of started to drift apart. We were, you know, busy. He was busy, I was busy, and um, eventually I decided to marry. I married. I called him, called Camilo, and invited him to my marriage and um, to my wedding. Yes, and he said um, that, that that he he couldn't go, that he he wasn't going, and um, I. Didn't know then, but I kind of broke his heart, and uh, and then, needless to say, my marriage didn't last a whole lot. It lasted two years, and and then uh, we just drifted apart. He he went to my mom's house uh, several times, finding my new phone. I moved to different places throughout the years, and eventually. I settled down, and he settled down also in a different city, and we just lived our lives. Um, eventually, when um, years went by, and and I, um, whenever I remembered my early years, I would always say, "Wow, just just always knew it was. It had been so wonderful because because of him, because he had been in my life." And uh, he had made it special. But I never got a chance to tell him that. I never did realize that when I was younger. And um, it was just one of those things that you take for granted. You enjoy it. You live it. 
It's always there. And then um, eventually <clears throat> we just lost touch completely. So um, later on uh, we, we got reconnected, reconnected and reconnected. reconnected. And it was, it, it, it was amazing to find that that same person that had been left in time somewhere, uh, it was exactly the same. It How was, long had it been since you guys had talked? So um, we actually um, didn't see each other for 28 years, it, but we kept once in a while talking on the phone and 20 years exactly when we stopped talking. By then, he had married. He had a daughter. I had. Um, I was um, expecting, and um, and I was in a relationship. And we both decided it. Well, you know, I wish the best for you. I wish you're you're happy in your life, and I just really want you to be happy. And and we decided it was for the best, just not to. You know, just live our lives, and and that's what happened. So when we reconnected again, um, uh, it was um, first of all uh, the first thing I wanted to say to him was that the, just to thank him that just what I mentioned a little bit ago. I never got a chance to tell him. Well, you know, it was just. So neat growing up with you, and you made every day special. And um, and uh, to my surprise, it 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 had been the same thing for him. Uh, he also uh, had all these memories, and he also felt that that it had been because of everything that we shared together. And we um, decided to pick it up where we left it. And uh, one day he had tears in his eyes and he said to me, you do realize that we were together in the spring of our lives and we'll be together in the fall and winter of our lives. But he said he was sad he, he said it in a way that of all the the the, the years that we uh, wasted from not being together mm-hmm. kind of like when you see the half empty glass but then I told him yes to realize that and you know what it's a privilege because if you look at it but the other way around, who can say, well, I can still see the kid you were. And someone can still see the kid that I used to be. And still in our mature days, be able to see beyond what we look now, right now. And, and just... Um, um, have that whole context of of a person so it's wonderful it's a privilege it's a privilege to um, 
to have this image of the kid that used to walk next to me and to see the person that's next to me right now, older or not. It, it was uh, just reconnecting with uh, someone that that was still the same. But um, they discovered um, a lung tumor and uh, and he, he needed to be operated on and, and there he was in South America. That was two months after we started talking again. And so he, he went into the hospital and there he was sitting alone the whole time. And I got to share with him over the phone, just on FaceTime, uh, and, and be with him the whole time. And it reminded me of the times when he used to sit next to my bed when I was sick. So it was very touching for me because I could only see him through the camera and on the one hand, but on the other hand, I could be there all the time, so nurses came in, drew blood, and I was with him the whole time until the nurses came in and rushed him to the operation room, and, and that's when they took his phone away, and uh, we had to hang up. But um, I thought to myself, you know, if I can do this right now, if I can sit and spend all this time with him while he is uh, in a hospital bed and uh, and feel the way I'm feeling because all I felt was this huge empathy and this huge um, uh, gratefulness because of all the times he had sat there when he was a kid next to my bedside. So it, it, it was... Um, it was um, rewarding for me in the sense that that I could give a little bit of, of just a little bit of, of what he had given to me before. And uh, thank goodness he got well. He recuperated. And the, 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 the good thing is that doctors and nurses, they were so surprised because he got out of it so well and so fast. Less than a week after the operation, he was up and going again and just getting ready to to see me because he was so happy and so excited. In order to come together again, um, Camilo and I had to make huge changes in our lives, especially him. We had to make big sacrifices and all of it, it impacted everybody that, that, that was around us. But it has also brought a lot of joy to us. And I think that the people that love us, they, they can see that in both of us. And they can appreciate the fact that uh, we're happy. The Zen Buddhist Dogen wrote in the time being, the way the self arrays itself is the form of the entire world. See each thing in this world as a moment of time. Things do not hinder one another just as moments do not hinder one another. The way-seeking mind arises in this moment, a way-seeking moment arises in this mind. It is the same with practice and with attaining the way. Thus, the self, setting itself out in array, sees itself. This is the understanding that the self is time. 
I think that Dogen is getting at the way in which who we are, who we think ourselves to be, is completely bound up in time. Every single aspect of ourselves can be tied to moments in time, experiences, thoughts. He's simultaneously expressing a way of releasing the past, of liberating ourselves from the things we think own us, and a way of embracing the past is ever-present in the fabric of moments. Susanna seems to have an implicit understanding that the self is time, because even as her childhood with Camillo receded from her, it was immediately at hand. To be able to recapture that relationship still intact and another present was even more lucky than she could express. It taught her an appreciation for the world that I'm sure few can match. I mean, what a wonderful wrench to throw into our explanatory processes. We've been trying to give a few good accounts of change and how that might happen, but Susanna herself claims that she and Camillo, together, were the same as they had been. How do we begin to understand how all three of these stories can be? It seems that even if Susanna hadn't been so fortunate, she would never be apart from him or the time they spent together, because even in the interim of their lives, they were the children playing board games in Colombia. Her separation from Camillo can never hinder his very real presence, because all of being is time and is bound up together all at once. Maybe for the rest of us who don't share her happy circumstance, we can at least come to this understanding. That we can never be alienated from ourselves or the moments all around us. Our happiest, best, or most important moments are ours to keep. Even as we change into something unrecognizable or leave this form entirely, we inextricably are. This, I think, is the most powerful lesson these teachings can offer.